0: Hello and welcome. My name is John August, and this is episode 624 of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Craig and I were both traveling for the holidays, so we asked producer Drew Marquardt to dig through the
1: archives and compile a character compendium. So Drew, what have you got for us? We've got three character-related segments that all kind of do with getting into a character's headspace and bringing the audience along with them. Um, so we're really focusing on scene work. That's great. So this is probably top of mind for you because I know you were just working on
0: this character's chapter or chapters for the book.
1: Yeah, exactly. And these are ones that just sort of popped out to me. We talk a lot about sort of character on the level of the entire movie or the entire show, Mm -hmm. but it it was really fun to sort of dig into the specifics in a scene. That sounds great. So what's the first segment we'll hear? First is a segment on point of view from episode 358. Um, so that's again point of view for the whole story and also for the scenes and sort of how to play to how to play with point of view and use it to your advantage. That's terrific. That's always a good lesson. And what's after that? Next is sort of the characters' inner emotional states from episode mm-hmm. four seventy two. So that's sort of finding the emotional truths in a scene and thinking about using verbs versus adjectives in terms of what a character is doing. So the that's way great. that like you know watching someone cry doesn't make you cry necessarily, but watching someone try not to cry and try and do something else can, you know, bring out a lot of emotion.
0: Oh, that sounds good. I remember that discussion of verbs versus adjectives is so useful in talking with actors, mm-hmm. but it's a good way to think about the characters on the page as well. It's a very actorly segment, but it all mm-hmm. has to do with writing. That sounds great. And I see that the third segment here is all the way back to episode 151, so yeah. quite far into the vaults.
1: It's one we don't do a lot because Craig's audio in it is a little bit wonky, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. but it sounds like he's on the phone. It comes through really well and everything he's saying is gold. So I had to include him. That's great. So it's on secrets and lies. So why it's important for your characters to be liars. But your
0: point about audio is well taken. Like we've always prided ourselves on audio on this podcast, but I feel like over the last two or three years, people's expectations of audio on podcast has dropped in a weird way. Interest. Like, yeah. Have you heard it in other places that I have like things that used to be sort of like good double ender conversations where they would send an audio engineer to like to have a microphone there at the place. Now they're just doing it on zoom. Like even on the daily, I hear some audio there that I can't believe uh, they're getting away with. So I won't feel so bad
1: about Craig's audio on this one. Yeah, exactly. And so our character theming continues with our bonus segment for premium members. Is that right? Yeah. We'll do a segment on single use characters from episode 467 including the greatest single-use character of all time, which is, of course, Edie McClurg in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Fantastic. Well, let's get into it. I will be back here
0: at the end for the credits. Everyone else, enjoy. (laughs)
1: Enjoy.
0: Let's jump ahead. Let's talk about our, let's go to our big topic of point of view. So, this is a craft topic that I said we would talk about in some future episode. This is the episode we're going to talk about it. So, point of view, I'm going to define as which characters in a story, you know, a movie story, a book, um, have the ability to drive scenes. Basically, that they can be in a scene by themselves and you will follow them. They can be a scene with strangers and you'll still follow them. And in some stories, It has a single POV, so only the hero can drive a scene. So Harry Potter is a classic example of it, both in the books and in the movies, essentially. Every scene has Harry Potter in the scene. And so you don't get any information that Harry Potter doesn't know. Other stories, you could follow anybody in them. So classically, an Altman film, anybody who wanders through the frame, the camera could follow them and they could be in their own story. Most films are going to have a mix of point of view. So you're going to have, obviously, scenes driven by your hero, but perhaps you're able to cut off to the villain and see the villain do stuff and see scenes that are just driven by the villain or, you know, a supporting character, a love interest. So there are different choices, but the choices we make have to be deliberate and they really help tell the audience how to watch your movie.
2: Yeah. I always think about point of view as an answer to a question with whom am I supposed to identify with in this scene? And by identify with, I don't necessarily mean I want to be like them or they are like me, but rather I'm with them. Even if it's a villain, sometimes I'm with the villain because the villain is considering the glorious possibility of so and so on and so forth. And I am with them and their ambition or their desire. The big thing that I think a lot of early writers and frankly, a lot of not early writers, a lot of practiced writers make the mistake of doing is not choosing a point of view in their scene. To me, there is no possible way to create a successful scene. If you do not know whose point of view you are asking the audience to follow, we are, I think only capable of having one point of view in a scene one. Mm-hmm. That yep. means everything that transpires ultimately is about one person's eyeballs, essentially. It doesn't mean that we can't have other people feeling things and wanting things and doing things, but it's from one person's perspective.
0: Yeah, so I think it's, you make a distinction here, which I think was important to call out, is that we can talk about point of view for an entire work, so the course of an entire movie, the course of an entire book, so that. This book has you know, a certain character's point of view. It's told from a certain character's point of view. But every scene is like a little movie, and every scene is going to have a point of view as well. And so you may have scenes in which two different characters, we've followed them separately, and we've seen them have separate scenes that could do stuff. But once we're in a scene with them together, you're going to have to tell us which character's point of view the scene is from. And sometimes you see writers not making that choice, or the writer may have made that choice, but... As it was directed, as it was sort of you know staged in front of you, mm-hmm. it wasn't actually done from that character's point of view. And that is a real challenge. And so that's a thing, even up to this last Sundance Labs I saw, I'll describe this project in sort of broad terms because it's not a movie that's out there for people to see yet. But it was a story that follows uh, two young boys who have an encounter when they're kids, then it jumps forward 30 years, you see these two people as adults we follow one person's story and then we cut to the other person's story and we know because we've seen movies before that eventually they're going to meet and in fact they do meet but the question is when they meet who's Ah. driving that scene yep and interestingly, as the story was structured, as I was reading it, it had gone back to the first character before the two characters met. And so I was saying that, like, well, I think it's from this character's point of view because he controlled the last scene. The last person we saw driving the scene is the person we're going to assume is driving the next scene. And so we talked about, like, well, if we took out that scene, it would shift and we would still be in the point of view of the second character. Mm-hmm. And that's a crucial distinction. It's like, we know who they're going to meet, but literally, who are you going to meet first? Who is driving the scene? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it it is an important distinction
2: to understand that there's the macro and the micro. And honestly, I find point of view to be the most useful thing to discuss when you are in the micro. Generally speaking, the large questions are answered. Who's the star of the movie? Who's the protagonist? Who's the hero? And so on and so forth. But then you have these little moments inside of movies where you have a real choice to make. And they're – so Harry Potter is certainly – you're right. It's from the perspective and the point of view of Harry Potter. But then here and there you have these moments where – I think this is like a scene where Ron Weasley uh, is watching Harry and Hermione together and he gets jealous. That's that's from Ron's point of view. A lot of times the audience will make certain assumptions based on the way the, the scene unfolds. And one of the simplest assumptions they make is the first character I see is going to be the person through whose point of view I will be experiencing
0: this scene. Absolutely. So in the case of Harry Potter, in most scenes, we're going to probably see Harry first and then we're going to see the the supporting characters. Granted, over the course of eight movies, we're going to be used to sort of seeing a different one of those characters first. But you're not going to have any scenes that are just one character, the other character. They may may be shots or little action sequences where we're only following one. But in terms of bigger sequences, Harry's going to be around for all those things. So if you are figuring out how to tell one story point from the book, you have to figure a way to visualize this information and keep Harry's still centerpiece to all the stuff. There's a great example in Goblet of Fire where, quite late in the story, Harry is captured by uh, Voldemort, and there's sort of an information dump that Voldemort needs to do. Right. That's information dump that Voldemort doesn't necessarily need to do for Harry Potter, but it's very important for us as the audience to understand. It's important that Harry be part of that information dump because he is our way into this world. Correct. And in the writing of that section in the book...
2: And then, by extension, in the writing of the screenplay and the film that we saw, there is not just a metaphoric point of view, but an actual point of view, an actual perspective. And this is a very useful thing to think about as well. When you're writing these scenes, if you decide that this, I always start by, like, okay, emotionally, whose point of view should we be uh, honoring here? And then once I have that that understanding, then I start thinking about physical points of view, not just through eyesight, but also through sound. So for instance, if you, a slight variation on the first character you see, you may see a character first and then we pull back to reveal that someone is watching them. Well, clearly there, the point of view is with the watcher. You may be on a person's face and you hear sounds and you know that they're listening, but the actual physical point of view point of sound is really important in scenes. It's important because ultimately that is a huge part of how the director directs. Uh, there's no other way to make those scenes work unless you understand point of view, because a lot of directing, just at least from the physical position, is angles. So the question is, what are the angles? Who,
0: Where are we looking? Where does the camera go? Who is it looking at and why? Last week we talked about the scene from... Uh, Aliens, And if people watch the scene, you'll see that even though Burke is doing most of the talking, the scene is very clearly from Ripley's point of view. She is the one watching and trying to process what he's saying. And the the camera work shows that, that it's really favoring her and it's favoring her reactions to his lines rather than him talking. So it's, it's still her scene, even though he's the one providing the information and sort of bringing what is new to the scene. Yeah. And you
2: can play games with point of view. You can make it seem like the point of view is one person's and then it's another. Um, The great example of that is in the the brilliant third act switcheroo in Silence of the Lambs, where you think uh, Starling's point of view is one thing and it turns out it's another and vice versa. There are scenes where two people have a long discussion and you're not quite sure whose point of view it is. And then they get up and they leave. And then we reveal that a person had been listening And they weren't even in the scene, but it was their point of view retrospectively. Also, point of view gives you an opportunity as a writer to shake things up. If you have a scene that maybe feels a little perfunctory or a little cliche, but it fits nicely into your story and solves a lot of problems, then maybe the answer for Spice is point of view. How can you change that point of view? How can you make the point of view of that scene somebody that you wouldn't expect? Suddenly, the scene becomes so much more interesting and fresh. There's a here's a cliche scene, a 11-year-old kid is called in on the carpet by the principal. So it's the principal yelling at the kid scene. Maybe it's from the point of view of the the principal's secretary or assistant. Maybe it's from the point of view of another kid who's waiting to go in next to be yelled at. You you find fun, interesting ways to make these things happen. Also, that scene, maybe the answer to that scene is, well, nine times out of ten, it's from the point of view of the kid because the kid's getting yelled at and we identify with the kid. What if it's from the point of view of the principal? What if we're identifying with the principal as they struggle to try and make this work and then the kid leaves and we stay with the principal after? And that's what point of view and those decisions get you. It makes you think about what the beginning and the end of the scene will be and who your eye should be on and who their eye should be on. It's a, it's, it's an indispensable way of approaching scene work. And I think we honestly just saved a lot of people a lot of money from, for film school stuff. <laughs>
0: So uh, let's talk about the specific example you gave for a kid in the principal's office. And, like, what if it's the secretary's point of view or the principal's point of view? Those are all really great, fascinating choices. And if it was the first scene of your story, it would be really interesting and unexpected because, like, oh, we expect it from the kid's point of view. And it's actually from the principal's point of view or the secretary's. But if it was this kid's story, if it's about a, you know, the 12 year old boy, um, we sort of couldn't stay with the principal's point of view unless that principal is going to ultimately have storytelling power later in, in you know, right. in our movie. So the, the moment you decide to stick around with a character who's not established to be a major character, who's not established to have a storytelling power, you're suddenly elevating that person. You're saying like, oh, this is a person that we now have an expectation that we'll be able to come back to and see independent individual scenes. There's maybe like five or 10 seconds where you can like hold on a character after the main character has left before that character goes like, okay, there's something bigger there. There's some Uh expectation you're setting. Just yesterday I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and the movie is, this is not a movie review, the movie is nuts in a way that I had not anticipated. I really enjoyed it. Partly because it does really odd things. And one of the odd things it does is there's a young girl character who is not really established. You don't see her, but suddenly like 20 minutes into the movie, we're cutting to her and her POV and she's like driving scenes by herself. And It sort of threw me at first. I was like, what is this movie? And then I remembered that Jurassic Park movies always sort of cut to like minor characters. They they were always elevating these minor people who could suddenly do things by themselves. And this movie sort of takes that and runs with it very fully. But it becomes interesting later on in the story where she and other characters meet. And it does get a little bit murky for me kind of who was in control of the story at that point. Uh, Because it wasn't clear whose POV we really were in in some of those scenes. It's a great point you're making
2: that the point of view more than line count or screen time determines the importance and the um, salience of any particular role in a story. The more point of view you afford a character, the more important they are, the more elevated they are in the tale. And you're right, you can actually have quite a few people doing this, but when they all get together then you do have a problem because again, I'll just say it's my rule. We as human beings really can only have one point of view at one time. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just the narrative is reflecting the biological. We have one field of vision. We have one field of sound. We can't see two things at once and we can't hear two things at once. We hear a combination of things or we see a combination of things, but that's it. And it's just our one view. So, In those conglomeration scenes, it's really important that the screenwriter makes sure to figure out who is the point of view person here because I need to make it really clear in that moment or else the scene will feel very trifurcated, quadfurcated, and so on and so forth. So sometimes the best thing to do with those characters that you've given point of view to is before you get to that conglomeration scene, kill them. Wayne Knight in the first Jurassic Park has wonderful point of view scenes Yep. And then,
0: you know, then he dies because <laughs> who, who needs him later? There's a, this again, I don't think it's a spoiler that, uh, Henry Wu, the character played by BD by Wong in the Jurassic Park movies, uh, shows up in this movie again. And it was strange to me that he didn't s- seem to have POV that for a character who's been established to the whole franchise, he's not allowed to drive any scenes by himself. And it felt like he'd, he'd sort of earned that. But also if you look at the course of the actual movie that we're watching, he shows up kind of late. And so it might've felt strange to like give him that power so late in the movie to elevate him to a place so late in the movie. When you do shift POVs and we do unexpected things with POVs, you do get a real jolt of energy. So I think back to Gone Girl. So mm-hmm. um, Gone Girl as a book, which I loved as a book and was you know, dying to write the adaptation of that. It's told as alternating chapters between the husband and the wife. And, for reasons I don't want to spoil in the story, that structure would not continue necessarily. Um, but then when it does continue in ways you couldn't imagine being possible in the movie, it's so thrilling um, that we are, we've are we changed POV uh, you know, midway through the movie and we've changed our sort of fundamental rules of how we watch the movie change halfway through. Uh, it was a great adaptation of a really great story that was told from a specific point of view. It had to change its point of view in order to work as a movie.
2: Yeah, it is thrilling. It's exciting. It's jarring. And when it's done well, it it is um, as exhilarating as any car chase because you are creating a kind of emotional freefall in people. And one of the thrills we get, I think, from going to movies and watching television shows is the ability to put ourselves in someone else's point of view, somebody else that's wildly different from us. Frankly, that's what we do as writers all day long, right? But when we receive it passively, it can be, because it's surprising, it's awesome. And it, it can really wobble the 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 you know the ground beneath you for a bit in a fun way, as long as it's done expertly and you feel like you're caught, you know, when it's not, then it just feels clunky or confusing or you start to say to yourself, I don't really know what I'm supposed to feel here or why. These are the things that, you know, we want to try and avoid uh, when we're shifting points of view radically. But it also occurs to me that sometimes when we talk about stock characters or when we see a movie and we complain about a character that feels cliche, that they aren't really getting a proper point of view. Rather, they are only existing in someone else's point of view and therefore they exist to serve a function. OK, so you're going to be the judge in the trial. Well, yeah, you're never going to get a point of view. <laughs> you know, you're just there to go overruled so that the prosecutor whose point of view we're living in or the you know, defendant whose point of view we're living in can see it and hear it. And one way to avoid those kind of cliche stock characters is to consider that perhaps maybe they deserve some point of view, but then you got to make space.
0: Yeah, you got to make space and make sure that you're not creating an expectation in the audience that you're really not be able to, to match. Correct. Correct. It's mm-hmm. tricky. Let's talk about general guidelines for when it makes sense to limit point of view and when it makes sense to broaden out point of view. So some benefits to limiting POV is it does make your audience identify very closely with whoever that central character is. Generally, if you're limiting your point of view to one character, like in a Harry Potter situation, you're going to identify very closely with Harry Potter because he's in every scene. So it's driving everything. And particularly if you have a character whose experience may be different than sort of your audiences, it can be great to limit POV because then you're seeing everything through his or her eyes. And so if you have a tale of racism and you're seeing it through this black character's eyes, I think you know an audience might be able to understand and empathize with it in ways they wouldn't see otherwise, because we so closely identify with the central characters. That's a huge advantage to that. Um, It really focuses their storytelling because you're only providing information that that character can actually get to. And so that's, that's helpful. So anything that the audience wants to know, the character needs to know too. And so, you know, you're following in his or her footsteps as they're going out and trying to do these things. And so we identify very closely with characters. If we limit the POV to those characters on the other hand, if you broaden POV, suddenly your movie can feel much more expansive because suddenly you can cut to Egypt, you can cut to Morocco, you can see all these different parts of the world, and you know, establish new characters when you want to establish them. That's hugely helpful too. If you are the kind of bigger epic scale story, that makes sense. If you're if you're Game of Thrones, you don't want to limit it to one character's point of view. Because you, you have to be able to jump around and have different characters be the hero of one story and the villain of another. Perfect um, thing to mention, Game of Thrones, because uh, when people talk about George
2: R. R. Martin's books, they literally refer to point of view characters. So generally speaking, in his chapters, there is a character that's sort of the point of view and they get an inner life. They have an inner voice and the events unfold through their eyes and their experience. And you're absolutely right. Any kind of epic story demands it, I think. And you should kind of know, I think, from the sort of story you're telling, whether or not you want to be expansive in your points of view or you want to be limited. But some other things to think about beyond just scale is how much your character is meant to know. If there's certain kinds of mystery or if there's a certain sense of powerlessness, generally speaking, it's great to side your perspective with characters that have less power and less knowledge (laughs) because then there's more to learn and there's more to know. And that's interesting. And it's instantly sympathetic. We don't really want to share the POV of people that know a lot or in control. So, you know, we don't need Morpheus's POV really ever. Um, We just don't need it except maybe for instance, uh, in the scene where he needs to break free from the agents and run and jump. We are in his perspective because at that moment he is very powerless.
0: uh, He's weak and he isn't really sure he's going to make it or not. There you go. A crucial example. So most of what we've been talking about has been sort of movie point of view and the things about sort of like, you know, which characters the camera on those are sort of movie conversations. But point of view is always a part of fiction. It's, it's always been one of the classic things we talked about going back to Pride and Prejudice. We are, you know, at Elizabeth Bennett's point of view and not Darcy's point of view and that we see the story through her eyes rather than his eyes. Sometimes, just like, you know, in movies, it's good to change point of view. It's good to change point of view in books as well. So, like, the, the first Arlo Finch book is entirely from Arlo's point of view. We only know information that Arlo knows. And if there's information I had to get in there, I had to have Arlo be present for that information to come out. Um, the second book, for reasons become clear when you actually read the second book, we do break POV at one point in the story and uh, my editor was like really nervous about this. But then as we talked through it, it's like it, it actually makes sense that we break POV and suddenly the, the rules of sort of who we're allowed to follow in the world mm-hmm. shift a bit. But you know, hopefully by that point you were comfortable enough with the characters I'm breaking POV to that. It makes sense. Yeah. I can't remember which Harry
2: Potter book began with an entirely different POV of somebody coming home and finding Voldemort in his house or something. Mm-hmm. And it was, it fills the world out and partly it also creates a complex reading experience because we are asked as readers to build little walls in our mind. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I just learned something and saw something, but the character that I'm, POV I'm going to be following for the rest of the book has not been there or seen that I'm going to put a little wall between them. They don't know that stuff. And then ideally the story at the end, will link it together and then they will learn it. And in the learning of it, we'll learn something else and so on and so forth. But It's exciting. You just have to do it really deliberately. You know, you can't. That's the thing. Like we always say, everything is about being specific
0: and being intentional. As long as you know what you're doing and why, it should work. It should work. And exactly the scenario you described where a story starts with a different character's POV before going back to the hero. That's a very classic movie thing as well. So how many movies have you seen that start with like some random people you're never going to see again? They're establishing some nature of the world or some nature of the fundamental problem before we get to our main characters. That's classic. So yep. beginning of Scream, for instance, we never see Drew Barrymore again, but it's entirely yep. from our point of view. Absolutely. So it's teaching us how to watch the movie. Yep. So don't feel like you're breaking POV just to do that sort of introduction to the world thing. That's very classic. Or, you know, the tag at the end. That's also well established. Yep. Uh,
2: uh, that, I really do believe that, honestly, that's worth
0: one year of film school. Done. Let us shift gears completely because I want to talk about a very crafty kind of issue here. The project I'm working on right now has characters who are experiencing some really big emotions. And you and I, Craig, haven't talked a lot about the inner emotional life of characters. We talk about yeah. sort of the emotional effect we're trying to get in in readers and viewers. Um, but let's. I want to talk about what characters are feeling because um, what characters are feeling so often impacts what they can do in a scene, how they would express themselves, literally what actions they would take. And so to set us up i wanted to play a clip from westworld okay. and so this is Evan rachel wood i think this is from the first season and um what i love about it is that she's so emotional and then because she's a robot she could just turn it off so let's... what would you know about that mm. i set myself up for that <laughs> you know, let me show you. my parents <sighs>
1: they hurt them
0: <sighs> limit your emotional effect
2: please what happened next
0: then they killed them and then I ran
1: everyone I cared about is gone and it hurts so badly
2: I can make that feeling go away if you like
1: why would I want that Pain, they're loss. It's all I have left of them. You think the grief will make you smaller inside, like your heart will collapse in on itself, but it
2: doesn't. I feel spaces opening up inside of me, like a building with rooms I've never explored.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes for that too so you can see what she's doing in the scene. Um, What I like so much about that is you look at how she is at the start of of that scene and she's so emotional, she has a hard time getting those words out. And then when she's told like, okay, stop being emotional, it brings her way back down and she can actually speak the words that she couldn't otherwise say. And that's so true, I find, both in my own real life, um, as I get these heightened emotional states, I can't express myself the way I would want to but also in the characters I write is that I feel when I know what a character is going through inside their their, their head, um, it completely changes how they're going to be acting in that scene.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty great clip. Um, Evan Rachel Wood is an outstanding actor. And one thing that's fascinating about that is that Jeffrey Wright, who's playing there against her, who's also a spectacular actor, what he says is limit your emotional effect, not not eliminate yeah. it, right? And so what she does is... Uh, and because she's a robot, she can dial it from a, an eight to a three, which, by the way, what he's doing there essentially is what directors are doing all the time on a set, which <laughs> is they walk over to an actor like, great, let's just um let's roll it, th- roll it back. Let's just pull it back five points and see what that's like, because then what happens is you're still feeling emotion. She still has a quavering in her voice. You can still feel her pain, but it's like she experienced it uh 3 hours ago and now she's starting yeah. to get a handle on it um as opposed to she's in the middle of it um yeah and so first things first when you're thinking about your character's emotional state is ask why are they experiencing these emotions and how distant are they from the source of it because that's going to be a huge indication to you about how
0: you ought to be pitching them absolutely so one of the things you learn as you're directing actors is to talk about verbs rather than adjectives. And so gives them a thing to do rather than sort of a description of like how they're supposed to be feeling. Cause it's, it's very hard to feel a thing. And what I might describe as being happy is a thousand different things. But if I describe, you know, invite the other character into the space, like you know, share your joy with them. That's a thing that an actor can actually play. And so be thinking about sort of not only what is causing this emotional state, but what is the actual physicality of that emotional state? Like what, what's, what's happening in there? And it's it's not rational. And that's a, a hard thing to grasp is that we always talk about what characters want, what characters are after. And this isn't this really the same kind of thing. It's, it's an inner emotional drive something that they cannot actually control. It's more their lizard brain doing a thing. So what may be useful is imagine that you're at a party and how differently you act or speak. If, for example you were terrified of someone in the room. Or if you were ravenously hungry, if you were ashamed about what you were wearing, if you were proud of the person's party was about, if you were disgusted by the level of filth in the room. Mm-hmm. Those are all sort of primal things that are happening. And in, if you're experiencing those emotions, the effect is going to be different. You're going to do different things. You're going to say different things. You're going to position yourself in the room differently. So getting an emotional register for each of the characters in a scene can be super important in terms of figuring out how the scene is actually going to play out. And I I do want to stress that we really are talking about scene work here. It's not overall story plotting. It's not even sort of sequence work. It's very much in this moment right now, what is going to be the next thing the character says, the next thing the character does. Yeah.
2: Well, it's also what people came for. You're absolutely right to distinguish between the normal acting place and the normal writing place is one of intention. I want something, so I'm going to figure out how to get it, whether it's to get your attention or have you fall in love with me or it's stop the bomb from exploding, whatever it is. That's the rational stuff that actors go through, and that's the rational stuff you're writing in there that is the plot. But what people come for is the emotion, because the emotion is when the character doesn't want anything, they are simply expressing the truth about what they are experiencing in the moment and that is the part we connect with we do not connect with the intricacies of disarming a bomb we connect with fear we connect with the anticipation of terrible loss the kind of foreshadowing of grief that's what we imagine when if you're if you're a parent you know this feeling you put your kid on a bicycle for the first time and whether you realize it or not your heart beats a little bit faster because you are anticipating them falling and getting hurt. So that's the truth. And that's what we all experience. That is the universal nature of this. That's the part people come for. So our job is to understand very realistically what somebody would be feeling in that moment, because while audiences will forgive things like, so the uh the first movie I ever had in theaters was a movie called um Rocketman not the Elton John story this is 1998's uh silly children's comedy Rocketman and the director uh it was didn't really wasn't really uh I didn't get along with well I just didn't appreciate his uh his uh creative instincts and one of the things he did I guess when he was shooting was there were all these scenes where these astronauts were walking around on Mars and The visors and the helmets were causing reflections from the light. So he said, let's just remove those visors and we'll put them in later with visual effects because he thought that would be easy to do. And then later Disney was like, this movie's not even that great. We're not spending more money on it. So there are scenes in the (laughs) finished movie where they are walking around on Mars and there's no visor in their helmet and Mm. audiences will forgive that (laughs) because they know on some level these people aren't really on Mars and who cares, but here's what they will never forgive an inappropriate emotional response because they know what feels real and what doesn't that's where they will kill you so our job is to be as realistic as possible in those moments to avoid the extremes of melodrama where things start to get funny because they're so wildly too big or to avoid the constraint of i guess we would call unnatural emotional response where things don't connect right or simply aren't there at all uh is it better to underplay emotion than overplay? Usually. Uh, can you underplay emotion to the point where it's just not there and the whole thing feels kind of dead and
0: battened down with cotton? Yep. Oh, we've seen those movies. We've seen those cuts where it just got t- too stripped down. It sounds like we could be talking about actors and how actors create their performance. And this, this is not a podcast about acting. Um, but there is such a, a shared body of intention here and and it doesn't even necessarily go through the director because so we are the first actors for all these characters. And so we have to be able to get inside their emotional states and be able to understand what it feels like to be in that moment, you know, experiencing these things so we can see what happens next. And so often when I find things are being forced, right, when, when I don't believe the reality of stuff, I feel like the writer is dictating, okay, this is the next emotion you thing you're going to hit rather than actually putting themselves into the position of that character and seeing what happens next and actually just watching and listening to what naturally does happen next. It's yes. it's always a balancing act there.
2: Well, the mistake I think a lot of writers make is to think, I want the audience to feel sad, so let me make mm-hmm. my character sad. That's not what makes us sad. No. At all.
0: No, um, There are times when the character should be sad, but that's not what makes us sad. Absolutely. And, and so often the lesson you learn is that if you want the audience to feel emotional and sad, limiting what we see of that character feeling that way or, or how that character externalizes that thing is often more effective. Like if The character holding back tears generally will generate more tears from the audience than the character who's actually crying. Um, because we put ourselves in that position and we are sort of crying for them. Yes. And sometimes
2: there's a situation where the actor's the characters may not be feeling an enormous amount emotionally, but what they're doing is something we can empathize with so deeply mm-hmm. that it makes us cry. I'm thinking there's a moment in Chernobyl where Jesse Buckley's character um is with her husband who's a firefighter and he's, he's dying clearly <laughs> evidently <laughs> and disgustingly and she's right next to him and she tells him, that they're going to have a baby. And she's obviously, she knows this. She's not super emotional in that moment. And he sort of just takes her hand and he's not super emotional. He's just pleased with this news. But I cry when I look at it because I feel such terrible empathy for them. And it's hard to even explain, like, to parse out exactly why that makes me so sad. Like, is it that she's smiling and he's smiling and that they're experiencing this moment of joy and hope, even though he's perishing in front of her. Is that what it is? It's hard to say. But what I do know is that if I try to make people cry, then it just gets dumb. (laughs) So, so you find your moments where, and there are moments where, for instance, Jesse, who's a spectacularly good actor and, and just has amazing instincts. There are moments in in the show where she is very emotional and I don't necessarily feel emotional in that moment. What I feel is alignment with her. Like, yes, I'm glad you're angry. Yes, of course you'd be scared. Yes, of course you're upset.
0: Well, that, yeah. that, that comes back to empathy. Because yeah. you, you've, you've successfully placed us as the viewer into her position. So we, we are seeing the story from her point of view. And that is not just the intellectual point of view, but the emotional point of view. And that's why we're feeling what we're feeling, that we are identifying with her. Yes, But let's talk about sort of how writers can sort of be thinking about, you know, these emotions. I want to get back to your example of, you know, you're the parent whose kid is like riding off on the bike for the first time and you, you know they're going to fall. That is such a specific example. And the reason you were able to summon that is like when that happened, you were probably kind of recording that. that yeah. little red light went off in, in the corner and they're like, okay, this emotional thing that I'm experiencing, this is real. This is a thing that I can hold on to. It's in my toolbox right now. Um, I think I've been doing since the start of the pandemic is I started doing Headspace, the meditation app. And one of the things that, you know, forces you to do is to really evaluate what are you feeling right now at this moment? And right. when you get good at being able to analyze what are you actually feeling, you can start to think like, okay, what would it feel like to be proud at this moment? What would it feel like to be angry or fearful? And you can start to distill what that emotion is like independent of the actual cause and sometimes as a writer, you have to be able to do that to actually say, like, okay, what is this moment with a little bit more back to every Rachel Wood, with a little bit more fear dialed in? What is this moment like with a little bit more dread or curiosity dialed in? Because with that, you can actually if you're like a musician, you know, putting together the chords and figuring out like, okay, what is the best version of this moment, this scene, this character's experience in this moment because of the emotions that I'm aware of and able to apply? That's right. Then you have the difficult job
2: of figuring out how that would work within the tone of whatever you're doing, because every piece has a different tone. Um, and over time, the way we generally make and then absorb culture changes. When you watch action movies from the eighties, what you will generally see are a lot of people behaving in ways that are emotionally insane, just insane. You know, stuff blows up and they're just like, Well, should have worn my sunglasses, whatever the dumb crap is. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger would quip after murdering people. (laughs) So, you know, why don't you like who does that? Like you just murdered a human being. I mean, he deserved it. He was a bad guy, but you killed him. Yeah. And then you have a little snappy joke that's a pun based on the manner in which you killed him. Well, that's the tone of that. As we've kind of gone on, things do change. Uh, and generally speaking, our culture has become more emotionally expressive and in touch. And that may be, well, I think it's generally a good thing, of course. And, uh, we are all of us, um, living in a post therapy age where many people have gone to therapy or they've just read books like chicken soup for the soul or whatever it is. We've been absorbing certain things. And so now when we write this stuff, part of what has to happen is you, you, the author cannot be afraid of your own emotions and you can't be afraid to confront how you felt in moments. And that means being honest with yourself uh, and understanding that when we go to the movies, so forget about you wanting to project some image of yourself to the world, right? It would be cool to project John Milius to the world because John Milius is super cool and everything, but I'm not John Milius. And I I just don't write tough like that. I just don't. Uh, I kind of do the opposite. (laughs) And so, um, you have to kind of forget about projecting some perfectly strong, invulnerable sense of yourself to the world and instead recognize that everybody who's sitting in there wants to feel comforted by a created human being's weakness and their triumph over that weakness, because that's inspiring to them. And, and if you want to look at one genre, that encapsulates that the most, the the embracing of the emotional self, particularly the emotional male self, it's Marvel movies. Because superhero movies were about kind of, you know, these sort of emotionally distant people because they were perfected.
0: And now it's, you know, they're tormented, which reflects Marvel. And now, now it's about Tony Stark's relationship with Peter Parker. Yes. I mean it, it's it's very much you know it's very specific, you know, character interactions is why we go to these, yeah. these superhero movies, especially the Marvel movies. Yeah. Exactly. So you have to get okay. it right. That's the challenge. This is, I think, probably where
2: writers will fall down more than anywhere else because they actually don't understand their own selves. So they don't know what a character should feel. How many times in our three-page challenges have we said, why is this person speaking in a complete sentence when somebody has a knife to their throat? <laughs> you can't, yeah. you just can't. There's dust there's no yep. the lack of emotional truth.
0: Yeah. And so as you're talking with actors and they can be frustrated, like, I don't know how to do the scene. This isn't tracking for me. A lot of times what it is that they're saying, like, I don't know how to get from a to E here. Like I, I don't have, you're not giving me the structure to get from place to place. And maybe you just didn't build that. Or maybe there's a, a way there that you didn't see before as writers. I mean, we're not documentarians, we're, and we're, so we're not necessarily creating scenes that are completely emotionally true to how they would happen in real life. Mm. There's going to be optimization, and it's going to move faster. And people are going to have to make transitions within the course of a scene that they probably will not do in real life. But that's the art of it. That's the that's how you are, you know, standing off the edges and getting there a little bit quicker. But you have to be you have to understand what the reality would look like first before you try to optimize it. Correct. And it's absolutely
1: correct.
0: So, Craig, what motivated this talk of liars and liars and scripts? Well, I'm working on a movie right now
2: that is uh, essentially it's a, it's a whodunit. Mm-hmm. And when you start to investigate the world of whodunits, you uh, and I've been reading a ton of Agatha Christie. I and mean, I've always been a, a, a Doyle fan and I've mm-hmm. always been a Poe fan. I mean, you know, Poe is really the, the kind of uh, inventor of the modern whodunit detective story. Yeah. For this kind of movie, I felt that Agatha Christie's genre was the most appropriate. So I've been just reading a lot of Agatha Christie. And one thing that I've noticed is all of the characters, with the exception of the detective, are liars. Mm-hmm. Part of the fun of a good mystery is that when you ask the question, who done it, the answer is any one of these people could have done it. And we think that they could have done it in part because perhaps they all have motive, they all have opportunity, but more importantly, they are all lying. And it's lying that makes us suspect them. But as I started to think about this, I realized, in fact, everyone's a liar to -hmm. some extent or another. All humans are liars. Lying is part of the human condition. But there are different kinds of liars. And there's different kinds of lying. And when we talk sometimes about Uh, new writers who are writing and the characters uh, will say, oh, everything seems on the nose or there's not enough subtext. In a weird way, I think sometimes the mistake people are making is that they're writing people and those people aren't lying. They're writing truth tellers. Yes. And it's just less interesting. So I wanted to talk about how useful it is to think of your characters as liars, but also the different grades or categories of lying and lying characters that you'll
0: Mm-hmm. I think it also feeds into our concept of motivation is, is why a person is saying the things they want us that they want other people to believe uh, is key to understanding who they are in a scene and overall in a, in the film itself. That's right. I mean, you know, the, it's not the, the, the idea of, of
2: drama and of experiencing a narrative with where humans move through it and transform is that uh, they are not at the end who they were in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And if, they are just truth tellers in the beginning. Naturally, they're simply going to say, well, here's the situation. I'm very scared of this. I'm scared of growing up, and I'm scared of telling you that I love you, but I do love you, and I'm hoping that by behaving better, I will, uh, in fact, grow up, and whether I get you or not, I'll be a better person. <sighs> movie over. <laughs> you know, it's like of course, everyone has to be lo- con- concealing something in some way. But then there are characters who are lying for other reasons, maybe not such – such understandable or empathetic or sympathetic I should say reasons. So let's talk about some of the different kinds of lying there is. The most useful kind to me is Mm self-deception. I think every protagonist to some level or another is engaging in self-deception. We'll say the character has an arc. It is a bad character, a, a dramatically unsatisfying character who has complete access to his or her emotional states, weaknesses, flaws, and can pinpoint them perfectly, and then throughout the course of the movie, go about and achieve them. One of my favorite examples of this, because it was done so cannily, is Jerry Maguire. One, I, I, I honestly think that Cameron Crowe pulled off one of the most brilliant self-delusional moves of all time. You know, we'll say sometimes in comedy, shine a hang a lantern on it. You know, mm-hmm. if you have something that seems a little wonky in your story, just Go for it and embrace it and people feel like it's intentional.
0: Yeah, call it out to the audience so the audience
2: knows that you recognize that it's there. That's right. So what does he do with this character, Jerry Maguire? And the, and the movie begins with a, a man who, in a moment of frustration, writes a manifesto about the kind of person that is a good person. But he is still engaged in a very high level of self-delusion. He is, in fact, not that person. Even the writing of that manifesto is a manifestation of his self-delusion. He's actually a bad person. The the manifesto itself is really more of a temper tantrum and nothing that he actually thinks he should or could do. As a result of writing that manifesto, he loses his job and all of his clients except for two. And actually, really, what it comes down to is one. And then must struggle over the course of the movie, clinging all the while to his self-delusions, to finally get to the place where he realizes, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be the person I wrote about in that manifesto. That's how strong self-delusion is. Even when you can write down the truth of
0: yourself, you do not believe it. I agree. Self-delusion is, is commonly the starting place for a movie where the, the journey is for the character to, to come upon emotional honesty, emotional authenticity. And so when we talk about sort of how useful it is for a character to lie, that's not that the movie should be lying. It's that that the character needs to um, have progress from this inauthentic state to an authentic state at the end. And Jerry Maguire is a great example of that.
2: Yeah. And I think
0: all characters, all protagonists, to some level or another, have
2: a self-delusion. If they have an arc, it means they have a self-delusion. Going into the world of animation, the character of Marlin in Finding Nemo, he is honest to himself to a point. Mm -hmm. He he honestly believes that he must take care of Nemo at all costs, but he's deluding himself because somewhere down there is access to a truth, Mm -hmm. an inherent truth that this can't last. The boy will grow up.
0: He must let him go. Even in movies that are more action-based or sort of have more classically sort of like, here's the hero protagonist. You often see that the hero at the start of the movie is really kind of a series of poses. It's there's, there's, it's, it's acting the part of the hero, but it doesn't actually have uh, the stuff inside him because he hasn't been tested in ways to really show what it is that matters to him. That's that, right. What it is that it is sort of unique to his own uh, journey.
2: Yeah. In fact,
0: that can start
2: to give you a clue as to what, you know, everybody's afraid of the second act, but this this gives you a clue to your second act. What situations should this person go through so that the, their
0: own delusion can be laid bare to them? Mm -hmm. That their normal way of doing things and the normal person they're presenting out into the world is called out in a way or is uh, ineffective in a way and they're forced to find a new identity. Right. And this works
2: in part because it is the function of drama to why we are attracted to drama is because it illuminates our lives. Mm -hmm. All of us are delusional. Everyone on the planet is delusional. We are all walking around. Either ignoring something in ourselves, willfully or or subconsciously, or simply misunderstanding ourselves. No matter how much therapy you go through, there will always be a glitch in the system because we're we're made of meat. Mm -hmm. We are rational to a point, Mm -hmm. but the part of us that is irrational is not accessible by the rational. (laughs) So therefore it's (laughs) happening out of our control.
0: Well, I would also question whether if you got rid of all your self-delusions, if you got rid of all of the lies, would, you even ha- would there even be a person left underneath there? I think in so many cases, our personalities and sort of who we perceive ourselves to be is a narrative that is carefully constructed based on experiences, based on our hopes, based on our dreams. And you are sort of a story, and a story is made up of some fabrications.
2: That's right. I mean, uh, you, at, just as you can't step into the same river twice, every new realization you have changes your mind. It changes who you are and gives birth to a new level of potential self Uh One hopes that you, 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 know, you can improve your life and know thyself is a great goal. But you're right. It's actually an impossibility to truly 100% know yourself. I mean, let's get really heady for a second. Are you familiar with Gödel's theorem? I don't know Gödel's theorem. Tell me. Well, first of all, a great book. This is my one cool thing for every day. Uh, Gödel Escher-Bach. It's an incredible book. Um, Douglas, I want to say it's Douglas Hopstetter, I believe is the, the, and he wrote this, uh, I believe in the 80s, this brilliant kind of mind-boggling book that goes into mathematics, artificial intelligence, logic, and ranges from Alice in Wonderland to the music of Bach to the drawings of Escher, and then interestingly into the work of Gerdeland. Godel's theorem. Godel had this very famous mathematical theorem, and essentially, what it said is, for any given system of mathematics, you know, in math, I don't know if you remember, you can prove things.
0: Yes, absolutely, that's crucial. Do you remember, do you remember yes. that? Right.
2: Yeah. So you so you have you have a system of rules, and then somebody gives you an assertion, mm-hmm. and then you can create a proof of that assertion using the rules, and you can prove that it is true, and that's important. Yes. What his theorem said was there are for any system of mathematics, there will always be things that are true that cannot be proven. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of mind-boggling in and of itself. And it gets to this whole idea of recursion and all the rest. But what, what it really comes down to is our brains are closed systems. There will always be things that are true that our brain in its current state simply can't prove. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you're right. Self-deception is,
0: is, is inherent to the human condition. So wonderful thing to think about as you're creating your character well and if you go in further if you actually were strip away sort of everything you think about yourself your entire narrative um i would point i'll put a link into Datura. i may be pronouncing it wrong but you know that oh, that God. drug the worst. Which apparently just like you know it just lays you completely bare and like you sort of see yourself and sort of your wholeness and all of your flaws and very few people can withstand that sort of that's spotlight right. of, of scrutiny that's um, right and, and when, so you, when you lose yourself if you lose all all of your lies precisely and that's
2: why the journey for a character that is struggling with their self-deception is difficult. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, see bad screenwriting teachers will always talk in terms of bloodless structure because that's all they understand. So they'll say things like, it's important that your hero face obstacles. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Let's just start with these really fundamental questions. Like I remember I took a philosophy class in college and the, the professor asked a question. It's, good to know that things are true but why why is truth better than not true <laughs> then you go huh that's <laughs> really i guess i should probably think about that well why obstacles because if there are no obstacles the obstacles aren't the point the obstacles are the symptom of the difficulty of undoing your self-deception
0: it's hard All right. So self deception is a key thing. What other types of lies do you think are are fundamental for storytellers? So that's the first and that's the most common class.
2: Then there's this second class that doesn't apply to every character. And I call this the manipulators. These are people who lie for a purpose. They are lying for an external purpose. And we can break them out into two subgroups. There's the protective manipulators and there's the uh, manipulators who are lying for gain. Mm Mm-hmm. So protective liars are people that lie in order to avoid pain or hurt or to maintain some lifestyle that is their best option.
0: Yeah. So uh, they're not trying to deceive themselves. They're trying to deceive other people so that they either protect what they have or protect the things they love.
2: Right. And you and I have both written movies that have this.
0: Big Big Fish, Edward Bloom. Mm-hmm.
2: He's a protective liar. He's lying because it's helpful to him mm-hmm. uh, not he's he's certainly lying more than the average person he, he's not lying to get rich no. uh, and he's not self- delusional he's lying purposefully but in order to protect himself
1: on yeah
0: I, I would I would push a little bit back on protect himself it's that he's he's attempting to the only thing he can pass on is his vision of how the world should be so he's attempting to use these fabrications in order to create in an idealized world a vision for what he wants for his son
2: yeah and i actually think that that's consistent with protecting yourself in the sense that if you don't do it then Mm -hmm. you feel inept as a father you know that you you've somehow failed that this is something he needs to do for his son and in identity thief the character of diana lies because she is lonely and unloved and the only way she can survive is by constantly lying Mm -hmm. constantly it's it's become a crutch Uh, And these characters can be very sympathetic, actually. They're frustrating. They're frustrating, and that's fun. They create conflict, which uh, we love, of course. And they also keep the audience guessing, which we love. And then, of course, they have the audience begin to connect with that person. The, The audience naturally tries to make sense of things. Yes. It's part of what we do as human beings. So they'll try and make sense of why this person's doing it. And now they're doing your work for you. They are engaged. Mm-hmm. And your job, when you finally explain why, is to explain why in a way that make, is satisfying for them.
0: That does make sense. Absolutely. So you're describing the characters' secrets and lies, which is probably really the same thing. They're, there's something that they're not showing. There's yes. Those cards are holding back. And that's a way of engaging the audience's curiosity. And anything that makes your audience lean into the story rather than sit back is a very good thing. That's
2: right. Now, the second subheading under manipulators are the people who lie for gain. And these are typically villains. Sometimes, however, they're heroes. For instance, Danny Ocean lies constantly for gain. He's a thief. But you'll take a a look at a villain like Hans Gruber in, in Die Hard. Wonderful liar wonderful, brilliant liar and lying for gain. He also too is a thief. These people who lie for gain are oftentimes much better liars than the people who lie to protect themselves or uh, conceal a personal secret. And they're definitely better liars than people who are simply self delusional. Mm -hmm. They're professional liars. So you get to write somebody who is not only screwing with the people around
0: them but screwing with the audience and this is important when you say they're lying for gain it's not just necessarily monetary gain if you look mm-hmm. at Jeff Bridges' character in Jagged Edge there's right. that's a character who is lying with a very specific agenda he's trying to protect he's trying to protect himself but it's he's also he gets so much more by uh, establishing and maintaining this lie—it's—it's it's, it's this natural way of um, going through the world—is that lie?
2: Absolutely. And sometimes the the reason the gain is actually quite noble. Flick the ant, you know, goes and gets these guys to help save the village, but they're just circus performers, you know. Mm-hmm. And and this lie has to be maintained until finally it's laid bare. Yes. Um, there, there are all sorts of ways that people can lie for gain, but when they do so, they have to do so with some skill. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as a writer, you have to actually think like a manipulative liar here who's trying to get something. The truth is no longer important. What's far more important is what you have to say. And the audience shouldn't always know. I mean, one of the great things about Ocean's Eleven is that they lie to each other. They lie to uh, Matt Damon. They—they uh, they, Not everybody knows what's going on. And then the movie lies to us through their perspective because we think we're seeing something we're not, and then
0: they reveal how they lied. So that gives you so many opportunities. I think the challenge for a screenwriter is recognizing when it is good to let the audience in and see the liar doing his work, um, because that can be really rewarding to see somebody do, be really good at the thing they're doing, and when you're better off holding back and keeping the audience in the same point of view as all the other characters, where, you know... They're being manipulated as well.
2: Yes. And the revelation of their lies should have the punch of some kind of climactic feel, Mm -hmm. because if you reveal it too soon, you'll you'll simply lose interest. I mean, we understand the the basic lie of Hans Gruber fairly early on, but there's this other lie that he's hiding from his own guys of what's going to happen with that last bit of security lock. He hasn't told them. Which is actually kind of great. I mean, because, look, realistically, if you were leading a gang of henchmen into a building to, to rob it and you knew that there were seven things you had to get through and the last one was an impossible-to-break electromagnetic seal on the vault, you would say, uh, don't worry. What we're going to do is we're going to stage a terrorist attack. Eventually, they'll follow the handbook, turn off all the power, and that will open the thing
0: for us. You ask for a miracle, I give you the FBI. But yes. he, does, he doesn't tell them. You look at Kaiser Soze at the end of *The Usual Suspects*, and you know that he is manipulative. You know that you can't trust him, but you didn't know that the whole, that everything mm-hmm. um, that you're experiencing was a lie. And it's it's a it was the right choice to save that reveal to the very, very end. So it is the sort of the punchline to the joke is the r- revelation of this last lie. right? And, that's, and I'm sure those decisions and, and you probably went back and forth about like, well, if we revealed a little bit earlier, then we could see we have had the tension about what will he get caught. Mm-hmm. And this was the decision like, nope, that the whole movie has to be set up to this point. Yes, exactly. And
2: that's a great segue to our next category because Kaiser Sose is a perfect example of somebody that manipulates and lies for gain. He's mm-hmm. also a very bad person, Yeah, but his badness isn't his lying. His badness is that he's a murderer. Mm-hmm. The lying is done to, To get him gain for his other badness, which is murdering, but then there's the last category of liar And this is the worst liar and these are always villains and these are some of the scariest characters you can create They're bad bad people. These are the chaotic pathological liars. Yes, these are the people that lie because they love trouble Mm -hmm. And they lie to create strife and drama. They can't control their lying they don't. I don't think they're alive unless they're lying. I don't think they even know what the truth is. Mm-hmm. So the character that often comes to mind in this case is is uh, the latest incarnation of the Joker, the Heath Ledger Joker.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One thing that I thought was just—I think everybody thought it was pretty amazing—in Dark Knight was when the character of the Joker explains how he got his facial scars, mm-hmm. and it was kind of very scary very revealing confession of a trauma It it made you almost sympathetic for a moment did and then there's another scene later where he explains to somebody else how he got his scars and it is just as compelling and just as terrifying and just as true feeling but it's a completely different story yes and that's when you realize this man
0: is just a liar yeah, he's truly a sociopath. He 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 had, really psychopath. I mean, all he can sort of do is lie, and that is is the air he breathes. And yeah. if he says hello, that's a lie.
2: That's right. And these characters are very difficult to write because, for the most part, we aren't them. Mm-hmm. I mean, occasionally, God help us, we will run into these people. And I worked for a person. I worked yeah, for one of those people. There you go. And and part of the problem is they're so good that you don't really know for a while what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it becomes clear. And then part of the struggle is it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that another person is actually do you like the audience want to make sense of them, mm-hmm. but you can't because they are operating in a way that is frankly, they don't even care about their own destruction. Yeah. You see, so like that the Joker doesn't care if he lives or dies. He has no interest in that. Mm-hmm. He loves chaos. Mm-hmm. He loves the chaos that, that lying can bring. And you'll see these characters, sometimes in noir, these characters are will skew towards female. Mm-hmm. Because when you put it in a man, you immediately start to think, my God, he's going to just start stabbing, shooting, killing, and all the rest. Whereas women can maybe just scramble your brain and make you second guess your own name and all the rest of it. And, and then finally, you know, Bogart sends you up the river. But liars, pathological liars, are very scary people. And if you're going to write one,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you just have to know that the movie will be
0: deeply infected by them. That, yeah, that they are going to take over. It's a movie that hasn't come out yet, but there's a, a Kristen Wiig is terrific in a, a, a comedy I saw. I guess you'd call it a comedy, kind of a comedy, kind of a drama called Welcome to Me. Um, should be out later this year. And she's not, she's not a psychopath. But she's—it's one of the rare cases where I've seen just a chaotic, manipulative person really at the center of a, of a film, um, like where she is supposed to be the protagonist, but she honestly kind of can't protagonate in a meaningful way. It's right. It's a really challenging task for a writer and for an actress to put to put that person at the very center of a movie and not have that person be the villain. Of course, because the protagonist. At some basic
2: level, is trying to achieve something. We ask simple questions of our heroes mm-hmm. What do you want? Mm-hmm. What are you willing to do to get it? What scares you? This is that. Well, what does the pathological, chaotic liar want? Trouble. <laughs> yes. That's what they want. They want trouble. So the only person I've written like this and I loved writing him was Mr. Chow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Chow is a chaotic, pathological liar. He does not care if he lives or dies. In fact, he thinks it's awesome. He just loves mm-hmm. trouble. But because he's so comic, and also embodied in this kind of very small, physically frail man.
0: It's funny, you know, I mean, yeah, but if you tried to have the Mr. Chow movie, good luck. Um, it's well, very, very, very challenging to, uh, yeah. put that person in the center of a movie and, and have them do any of the kinds of things you, you want a person at the center of a movie to be able to do. Uh,
2: absolutely. In fact, Todd and I talked for a bit about the idea of what a Mr. Chow movie would look like. And it was totally different because it was the darkest thing imaginable. And I remember, we had this one idea for a scene that sort of sums it up. Mr. Chow comes home to his, to see his elderly father Mm -hmm. and he walks in and his, his old, old father looks up at him and says something like, Leslie, you returned to us. You came back. And Mr. Chow walks over to him and then cuts his throat. (laughs) And as his father is dying, his father looks up at him and says, good job. (laughs) <laughs> because that's the only that's how mr chow's born it's just pure awful chaos and darkness willful self-destruction the only goal there is is to
0: blow up the world you know yeah yeah those characters are are almost unhuman because they don't yeah. they just they don't work in, in our normal ways uh, Crispin Glover and I had a few conversations about taking his Thin Man character from the Charlie's Angels movie and just sort of doing his own movie. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, nothing would will ever come of that, probably. But he, it, it's a fascinating character, but such an incredibly challenging character to put at the center of anything because he's del- he is chaos. He's like chaos and, and death in ways that's very hard to, it, well, his challenge, it's very hard to have insight into that character because deliberately they're supposed right. to be opaque and you just can't know them. Scarlett Johansson's character in Under the Skin is a similar situation is where she's just this lioness. There's, there's just not a human. There's literally is not a human underneath that. It's uh, it makes it very challenging.
2: Right. It essentially doesn't work. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. It, it needs to be there needs to be somebody in opposition to it or they need to not be human. And that's sort of the point. And then the purpose of the movie is to illuminate the difference between humans and non-humans. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they they will infect your movie and you have to write them carefully. They can kind of get in your head. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by all means, if you run into one of
0: these people, stay like go the other way. And hey, it's John back again in 2024, which seems impossible to be real. Scripts is produced by Drew Marquardt, edited by Matthew Cilelli. Our outro this week is a replay by Rajesh Naroth. If you've an outro, you can send us a link to ask at johnaugust.com. That's also the place where you can send questions. You can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at JohnAugust.com. That's also where you find transcripts and sign up for our weekly newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. We have t-shirts and hoodies. They're great. You'll find those at Cotton Bureau. You can sign up to become a premium member at scriptdumps.net, where you get all the back episodes and bonus segments like the one we're about to give you on single-use characters. Thanks.